HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred source for tabletop and more. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there in front, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh yeah, what are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, owner of Samisa Restaurant. As a chef and business owner myself, I'm always looking to talk to interesting people in the food industry so I can grow as a chef, business owner, and member of the cooking community in New York and beyond. On each episode of The Line, I welcome one guest to discuss the trajectory of their career. If world exploration and travel experience provides a solid foundation for culinary inspiration, today's guest has prepared and then some. Throw a dart at a map, and it's a good chance you'll hit a place my guest has visited or even lived in. Clarice Lamb was born in Canada, and in her travels as a professional model, she has been to over 280 cities. She's lived in 13 cities in 11 countries on four continents. After her 10-year modeling career, she attended Le Cordon Bleu in Italy and the French Culinary Institute in New York. After school, she spent time at Thomas Keller's Bouchon Bakery and John George Spice Market. She then went on to be the head chef at the Chocolate Room the Brooklyn dessert restaurant that held one of Zagat's highest ratings, a 28. In 2012, Clarice launched The Baking Bean, an oven-to-door bakery specializing in all-natural desserts and confections based in Brooklyn, New York. Today, we'll be talking about the high-pressure world of pastry perfectionism at the world's top restaurants, starting your own business, and we'll try to get her to decide what her favorite food city in the world is. Clarice, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So you were born in Canada, and then you moved to LA. So tell us a little bit about your early childhood. Where were you born? Why did you end up moving to the United States? And uh, and what brought your family to Los Angeles? Uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada, and uh, we moved to LA when I was five because of my dad's uh, work. Um, and then I basically grew up in LA, except... My dad's company then moved him to Hong Kong again when I was like from 10 to 12. And then we moved back to L.A. And then after that, after I graduated high school is when I started all my my crazy traveling. So you moved around a lot as a kid, which obviously prepared you somewhat for your later life as being uh, living out of a suitcase as a professional model. What did your parents do? What was your dad's business that brought him back and forth all over the country like that? Uh, my dad is a computer engineer, um, and he, he, yeah, he just wore, he used to be like the, the, uh, VP of Nortel. He just did a lot of like very smart, smart things. 
that I'm sure he wanted me to get into, but that didn't really happen. Um, my mom's side of the family, especially my grandmother, was super into food. Like she, my mom, th- my mom's side of the family is from Hong Kong, and but she loved all like all things like French and like European and like the stinkiest cheeses ever and like the most expensive foods ever not even like because it was expensive but she just had really really good taste so I think that's how I initially got introduced as as a young child into into good food Toronto's a really great food city now I don't know about when you were growing up LA also a great food city now but I am willing to go on record as saying even 10, 15 years ago, not considered like one of the top food cities in the United States. When you were growing up, was your family more of a a dine at home, we cook ourselves type of family? Were you a a fast food American family? What what was on the table for dinner in your household and and who was doing all the cooking in the house? Uh, My mom was doing all the cooking and my mom made Chinese food for my dad every night. Um, I was a brat. And so like, I wanted chef Boyardee and pizza rolls. Sure. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause like when I was a kid, I was like, I don't want to eat Chinese food. That's enough. And now all I want to eat is like noodles every night, you know, your mom's Chinese. Food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all I all I want to eat is my mom's Chinese food now. Um, uh, but yeah, so that was what was on the table. And we would also, my mom would bake a lot as well. And she would, make these uh, coconut boughs, um, which is pretty traditional Chinese thing. It kind of looks like a snail, but it's like uh, the swirl is, is coconut and butter. But my mom would fill fill these buns with like basically a stick of butter mixed with coconut. <laughs> you took a bite into it and it would just like melt in your most delicious thing on earth. And so how did you get involved in your early life uh, with modeling? Were you discovered on the street? Did you put a packet together and go to auditions with your parents. It's so competitive. I'm wondering if you really wanted to do it or did you get maybe pushed into it? I I did not want to do it. I had no, I didn't even know what a model was to be honest. I was very, very naive as a, as a, as a youngster. And I just had no idea about any of it. Um, it was actually my, my parents fault for getting me into it because they decided I was very rude and I needed to learn manners. So they put me in an etiquette school where, you know, you learn to like walk with a book on your head, how to, how to correctly like present, you know, important people to your friends or your family, like which fork means what, like that kind of stuff. Right. And so they just kind of wanted me to learn about manners. Um, they didn't know that at the end of this thing, they chose one, one student, um, to give like a, like a, uh, a scholarship to like a modeling school, which of course is absolutely unnecessary, but like my parents, you know, they're Asian and they're like, something's free. Okay, go do it. You know? So they're like, okay, go to this like modeling school thing. And that was kind of my first introduction to, to, you know, to modeling. Like I took some pictures, I learned how to walk and like whatever. But one summer I was in right, you know, before the year before I graduated high school, I was in New York city and I got scouted by, um, an agent, uh, uh, from San Francisco called stars, the agency. At that time, it was it was one of the biggest agencies in in the West Coast, and um, my parents said, "Okay, like when you graduate high school, you can go there, but you also have to go to school at the same time." So I was like, "Whatever." I just signed up for, you know, San Francisco State just so I could move to San Francisco, and that's kind of what launched my modeling career. So, uh, how old were you when you moved to San Francisco? Sixteen. And did you get an apartment by yourself? And were you going out on shoots during the day? What was what was that like? I actually stayed in the dorms of my school, and yeah, I would just I would go to castings, and I would never go to class, <laughs> and I would only show up to class when I had to take a test. <laughs> and that's about it. I how spent- did that work out for you? Did you end up graduating? Uh, no, I, cause I only went there for the one year. Oh, just for the just for duration the one year. of the modeling Yeah, school. just for the duration, uh, for the modeling contract. So. And so then you, did you start traveling pretty soon after that? Yes. So then right after that, I moved back to LA and then I stayed there for a few years with various agencies. 
uh, worked in LA as a model. And then, yeah, I just started traveling all over the place. I kind of was like, oh, I want to see, you know, I want to see what Paris is like. I want to see what London is like. And um, that's one of the good things about modeling is that you can kind of do it everywhere. Like as long as it's a cosmopolitan city, you know. I imagine that it was exciting and felt pretty glamorous at that age to be flying around and traveling. Was it scary or were you excited to be off on your own? I was excited. I was, I, it wasn't scary to me at all. Um, I don't know why, but I I just, I don't, I'm scared of other things like talking to people, but, (laughs) but not like picking up and moving, you know? So you did that quite a bit. Where was one of the the first or one of the first cities that you settled in for a long period of time after moving back to Los Angeles? Um, honestly, I never lived in anywhere for longer than a year and a half. Um, Paris was was the year and a half to two years place that I lived until I moved here to New York City, and I've been here for ten years now. Why? Why do you think you moved around so much? You you said you could have lived anywhere. You could have built a home base. Was it just, were you seeking something specific at that time? Was the allure so strong to keep moving? Uh, I just think for me, it was exciting. I've always had like a desire. I've, I mean, I traveled so much as a kid with my parents. So I was brought up like that. Um, and I've just always had a really strong desire to kind of see the world. And every time I moved, it was like a rush of adrenaline to like kind of figure out like it, it was like a puzzle kind of to me. You know, it was like figuring out the like quirks of each city and like and, you know, trying to learn new languages and and meeting new people. And like you have the whole world available to you. For me, it was like, why would I just want to stay in one place? If If I can do it, then I should do it. This is pre-Yelp, pre-Googling things, a lot of it. So did you have a, a network of models or people in the fashion industry that you could turn to and say, I'm moving to X city, can you tell me where to go and eat? Or did you do a lot of just general getting on the ground, exploring by yourself, getting lost? Like, How did you find out where to live, where to hang out? How did you meet people in every new city? Um, that's actually a really good question. <laughs> I couldn't even, re- I couldn't even tell you. I no, I did not know anyone whenever I moved around. Um, I just would meet people like going to agency parties or, um, whatever events I would meet people that way. Um, I hung out with a lot of models at the time. Um, sometimes I would go take language courses and I would meet some people there Uh, As far as like food and restaurants, it was mostly just me like walking around and kind of, you know, finding things or trying to hang out with locals so that they could introduce me to to what was good. There's obviously a lot of pressure to look and remain a certain size while modeling, but you're really into food. Your family has a strong love of food. Uh, Was there any ever any pushback was there any self-imposed strictness about being in Paris and you know not indulging or did you go out and and eat, be able to eat whatever you wanted in every city throughout your career I at that time my metabolism was really really good so mm-hmm. I was able to eat whatever I wanted whenever I wanted um but sometimes like you would go to agency dinners and it's like like you have like you're sitting at like you know one of the fanciest nicest restaurants in Paris and like you know that you know your agency is paying for it so I'm like I'm gonna order this 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 and this and this and I would definitely get like frowns from the Parisians you mm-hmm. know like what do you do it like that's not how a lady especially a model is supposed to act sure but I'm like but I'm hungry. <laughs> But yeah, so I would eat whatever I wanted. Now it's a totally different story. I have to work real like I I have gained 25 pounds since since becoming, you know, starting my culinary career and I have to work hard at it. Like I have to do a lot of yoga. I got to go to the gym regularly. I have to not eat as much sugar or ice cream as I want, you know. But back then it was it was super easy. There was no there was no uh nothing I couldn't eat. I'm not going to ask you to, to you know, rank your, your top 10 favorite cities because you've been to 
10 times as many cities as most people visit in their life. But I do want you to just select a couple highlights, a couple places that really stick out as your in your mind as being um, formidable in your in your culinary pursuits and maybe a city or two that uh, provided an inkling of what would happen later. You know, besides Paris, that is it's kind of obvious. People get inspired right. by food in Paris all the time. Was there anywhere else that spoke to you that now you're now that you have your own business and you've worked in food for such a long time that you said, oh, in that city, that was really something spoke to me? Um, I wouldn't say that it, for sure. hundred percent Paris was was the thing that made me want to go into pastry. Um, when I lived, I lived in Florence and Italy, and that was definitely like I you couldn't find a bad Italian restaurant. You can go to the smallest street and get the, you know, like dinkiest bar and just grab a sandwich. And it's, it's still great. Um, that was, that was really, um, formative for me as well. But I would say that one of the things that actually really made me want to become a chef was when I was living in LA and I was like a teen, I was still in high school. I was a teenager and, you know, we would go to this place, which was like an all-you-can-eat sushi bar kind of thing, which is, you know, it's called Todai. And, it, you know, it's all-you-can-eat sushi. It's like, how how long has it been sitting there? You know, it's like, what? it's not the best quality, but like sure, you definitely. get a lot of it. And so that's kind of what I was used to. But then my aunt came into town from Portland and she was like, I'm taking you guys to Chef Masa's like eight seat, whatever omakase on, on Rodeo drive. And we're like, what? Like, I didn't know what that was. I didn't even know what that meant, but I went and all the, the seafood, the fish was flown in fresh from Japan the night before. Like at that time, you just had to tell them how much money you wanted to spend per person. And they made a total custom menu for you. I ate blowfish for the first time. I didn't die. Like I, you know, and that, at that time when I was eating that meal, I just remember thinking, holy crap, like you, I can actually taste a difference in qual. And I'm like 13. I'm like, this is like crazy good compared to the, you know, this all you can eat sushi place that we're used to going to. And now I never want to go back to that. Now it's like that really highlighted for me, the importance of quality of ingredients and like freshness and, and seasonality and just thinking, wow, like this is, I want to be a chef now. I'm curious about, you know, several years into your, into your modeling career, what did your parents and your family think your dad was, uh, a businessman, uh, you weren't really that good at school by your own admission. It wasn't something that you really pursued that heavily. Were they happy once you established your career? Did they always think that it was a phase and that you might end up going to college? What was their perception of you, uh, traveling all the time and being a professional model? Uh, I think my dad was definitely not very happy about it. My mom always tried to be supportive. I was actually, I was really good at, at school. I just didn't like going, you mm. know? And so I think that was almost, almost made it worse for my dad because it's like, cause you had the ability, cause I to had do the so. ability. I was like in the top, you know, 10% of the nation, like, uh, grade wise and whatever. But like, I had the ability, but I just wasn't interested. I always was leaning more into something creative and more free than than the sort of like structured um, business type thing that my dad would want me to get into. So he definitely was not happy about it. Um, my mom probably wasn't very happy about it at the beginning, but then she just ended up was like, okay, she's going to do what she wants to do, so I guess I'll support her. And then I think after many, many years, they were just like, whatever, Clarice is just going to do whatever. I guess that's it. And they just accepted it, you know, and now they're happy for me, you know, so it all works out. <laughs> so following the trend of, you know, doing whatever you want to do, your career is, has been going for quite some time at, at this point, And you make a decision to go to culinary school. Can you frame that? How long have you been a model at that point? When do you decide to go to culinary school and how long were you in culinary school for? So when I lived in, when I lived in Italy, um, I, as part of me wanting to immerse myself in the culture more, I, I signed up uh, for courses at the Cordon Bleu over there, and I just studied Italian cuisine, like savory, um, Italian cuisine, and I really loved it. Like, that was, for me, the only kind of schooling that I actually had fun, 
you know, had fun at and I couldn't wait to go to like every day. Um, so that was a start of it. But then I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be like the modeling is going to run out at some point. Like I'm not going to stay young and like, I'm not going to be like skinny forever. And it's, I'm just going to ride it until I feel like it's done. Um, so I, yeah, I modeled for probably about 10 to 12 years full time. Then I kind of started going, you know, like part time. And then when I was living in Spain, I had decided that I was going to, you know, sign up for French Culinary Institute in over here, which is now the ICC. And, um, yeah, that's what happened. And so you move over here, you enroll full-time in ICC, Mm -hmm. and you've already had a full life and a full career. Are you, uh, are you in a class with 17 and 18 year olds and? Okay. Maybe 21. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes, yes, I was. Uh, and what was, uh, what was their perception of you and did you feel like you had more or less to prove like you had already had a full successful career doing something you were switching careers did you feel intimidated at any point or were you just ready to kind of take on this new challenge uh not super intimidated in school um I definitely felt like everyone was younger than me but we I also remember in class we had one woman and she was in her 60s and she was like badass and like really you know it's like she was at you know, finished all of her, her careers and she wanted to do this for fun. And I thought that was super cool too. So in, in my particular class, we, we had a pretty good range of, you know, an age range of students. Um, so I didn't feel intimidated in class at all. I think it was more like when I first got into the kitchen is when I kind of started feeling intimidated. What, what skills And what was applicable from traveling and uh, basically, you know, being so independent and and running your life for 10 or 12 years when you got into culinary school and your first jobs, like what was applicable from those past experiences that made you able to take on this new challenge? I would say definitely like I uh, developed a very uh, strong head on my shoulders from modeling and traveling. I became very uh, adaptable because of all of the places that I've lived. And so, and, you know, and very like disciplined as well. So I was able to just sort of listen to whatever the chef said and just kind of do it. And then, um, and not feel insulted or like my ego was bruised if, you know, if I, if somebody was yelling at me or if I didn't do something correctly, I was like judged for like my whole life on, on the stupidest things, you know? So it's like, I just, I didn't care. Like I just kind of let any sort of like insult or, or, or whatever roll off my back. And I would just try to listen to what, what they were actually saying. Yeah. I changed careers as well. I got into food late and I didn't go to culinary school, but I remember the first day that I started cooking in New York and I was older than most of the other people at the restaurant. I was very intimidated. I mean, I felt that I knew how to chop vegetables, but I was still scared, right? Right. So can you uh, walk us through what your first day uh, on on the line was? Was it at Thomas Keller's restaurant? Was it somewhere else? What was that first day like? If you remember, what did they have you do? And what did it it feel like when you had – you'd finished culinary school and you'd also gone to culinary school abroad when you were actually in the mix? What did it feel like for that first time? It felt nuts. Um, <laughs> my first job was at Spice Market. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like, for me, it was sort of like learning a new language. You can learn, you know, French for like seven years in school or high school or whatever, but then you don't actually get it until you move to France. You know what I mean? It's like, I went to culinary school. You think you get it, but you're not working with like 80 quart Hobarts. You're not working with like, you know, you have to get your dessert out in three minutes or less. Like you're not working with these, all these different kinds of, I didn't even know that a Cambro was called a Cambro, you know, like I was like, what do you call this thing? You know, I'm like, I was so lost and so like stupid. I like, I really had no, I had no idea. And, um, so I just had to learn everything. And I'm sure that I probably came off as, uh, not, the brightest, you know, uh, bulb in the shack. But I think I learned very, very quickly. Um, but I think that 
even if you go to culinary school, you're not necessarily prepared to go like right out into the workforce for what's about to happen. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about jobs in New York. And of course, you going off on your own and uh, forming your own company. Stick with us here on the line. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred partner for sourcing tabletop supplies. From their New York City headquarters, LMT provides expertise and uniquely curated products for restaurants and hotels nationwide. Whether it's dinnerware, glassware, and cutlery, to small wares and equipment, LMT's approach to tasteful design and product knowledge is simply unmatched. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com and listen to founder Morgan Tucker on episode four of Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and today I'm joined by Chef Clarice Lamb. She was born in Canada and went on to a long modeling career where she spent many years traveling the globe. And while she was in Italy, she went to the French Culinary Institute and she became super interested in food and baking. And she went on to move to New York and go to culinary school here. And right before the break, we were talking about your first job at Spice Market, Jean George's restaurant. You didn't really know what you were doing, but you're excited. You were there. It was a fresh new career for you. How long did you spend at Spice Market? And then where did you move on from there? Um, yeah, I was very excited. I, I loved working the line. I loved work. Like, I just love kind of working under pressure. That's like, that's my jam. But, um, I was there for like a year. Um, I started, they started cutting back on our hours. So I wanted to find a second kind of part-time job. Um, and I got one at the, the chocolate room and, um, eventually they offered me a position of head chef. So I decided to take it. So I left Spice Market, went to the chocolate room as a head chef. And then eventually from that, I became the executive chef and I was running the both locations. So what is the chocolate room? For those that aren't familiar with it, talk a little bit about what the setup is and, uh, and the locations and who was on staff and what your role there was. Uh, so the chocolate room, it's a uh, Brooklyn-based dessert restaurant. There's one in Park Slope on on Fifth Avenue, and there's one on Court Street in Cobble Hill. And um, we just make all-natural desserts, and everything has to do with chocolate. You know, there's chocolate confections. We also made ice cream. Um, we do plated desserts, chocolate cakes, um, you know, coffee, whatever, wine also. So it's coffee, wine, and all of, all of the chocolate. <laughs> and it's only dessert, right? There's no savory on the menu. Like, you can't go in and get a piece of chicken. <laughs> no, there's no savory. Okay. It's only dessert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so what are the hours? Is it only open from, like, 9 to 11 o'clock at night or something like that? Is the expectation that people come in there for dessert after going somewhere else? What was the clientele like? Yes, I, I believe the hours were something like that. Like, I think... It, I believe that we opened around 11, though, a little bit later. So 11 to probably 11, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't be there all day. I actually had very, very good hours there. Um, yeah, there were a lot of people that would come after dinner time, get their chocolate cake. I made, like, a, a weekly special plated dessert. Um, people would call in to find out what the special is. Um, and, you know, they'd come in for a glass of wine, some chocolate desserts they come in and buy chocolate bonbons um get their ice cream sundaes so there was a retail component as well you could come in and just buy a piece of cake and then leave or okay and so what was that experience like definitely way different than spice market right and so you were in charge at that point how many other people were on staff what was your kind of what was a, a normal day like for you there Absolutely way different than Spice Market. Uh, Much slower paced, 
much more chill. I just come in early in the morning, um, you know, work for a few hours by myself before somebody else came in. It was very like Zen and meditation. Like, um, I had, I had, I think maybe three or four cooks at each location under me. And, um, yeah, those three or four, yeah, I would say three or four at each location. And so what were some of the things that you, did you start trying things there that you hadn't necessarily done anywhere else yet? I mean, you had the, you had the keys, you were in the driver's seat. Did you really expand your horizons and try lots of things that you had in the back of your mind? Were you experimenting a lot or was it the type of clientele that you had to kind of stay pretty much in the normal parameters of what people would expect? Well, we had our staples that would always be there. I got to experiment um, every week when I wanted to do my weekly special. So whatever I wanted to do for the weekly special was was up to me as long as it had some sort of component of chocolate in it. And that's that was really refreshing for me because I got to, you know, experiment more with my creativity. I still had some parameters, though, because, you know, it, it's a very sort of it's not like a crazy, you know, very different place. It's very sort of traditional, like Americana kind of uh, dessert, chocolate, you know, ice cream sundaes and things like that. But I would, you know, get to do different things and, um, and you know, make my own make my own creations. And that for me was like really fun. So it's sort of your first taste of being in charge and you probably have to pay attention a lot more to the business side than you did at Spice Room where you're just kind of on the line. You're more of like a cog in the machine. And now you're, you're at the top of the food chain and there's probably an owner or a partner that's having maybe weekly meetings with you. Uh, what were your first experiences like talking about P&Ls and all the money and hiring and firing related aspects of the business that don't really have anything to do with the food or the creativity. What was that part of the job like for you? Um, all the PNL stuff and all the, actually the owner took care of m- most of the like finances and expenses and things. I really just, which made it very easy for me. I, I did the hiring and firing, but I, you know, just taking inventory and making the, you know, uh, orders for ingredients and stuff. But that's as far as like the things that I had to do, which was, very, very easy. <laughs> yeah. So when you went off on your own in 2012, there must have been some shockers to starting your own business and, and going out on your own. So first off, why go out on your own? And, and what was that like to try to start building your own business from scratch? I actually had no intention of going. I didn't, that thought didn't even occur to me. I was working in the chocolate room. I was very happy. It was an, you know, easy, but still challenging job. I was very comfortable. Like I had a lot of, I had my free time. I made my own schedule. As long as I got my work done, everything was great. I had no intention of going out on my own, but my friends, um, you know, would come by and, and they'd be like, you know, Clarice, you're really talented. Like you should try to do some more stuff on your own. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know? And, you know, one of my friends suggested that she actually like worked in PR and she was like, just do me a favor and, you know, put, just come up with some menu of something that if it was your own business treats that you would make, give me 10 sample boxes and I'm just going to send it out for you and we'll see what happens. And then that's what happened. (laughs) So I did that. Um, I just made, I came up with a menu in like 20 minutes I had my sister help me put together a website real quick. I was like, I just made, you know, a small sample box with, I think there were four things in it. Um, And then she helped me send it out to the press. And the next thing I know, like the New York Times is like, we want to feature you. New York Daily News was like, we want to feature you. So it was really a lot of just kind of luck. Like I actually had no intention of leaving. so it was luck. And then I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. So that's like, I, that's how it got started. And then I just, you know, I, I stayed at the chocolate room for a little bit longer. They were very, very gracious and very nice to me. They allowed me to use their kitchen on off hours to produce stuff for uh, my own business, the baking bean. And 
um, once it got to be too much, I, I left the chocolate room and I had every intention of just focusing solely on my own business. But then, um, a friend of mine was leaving Bouchon Bakery and she's like, they're looking for a new, uh, team leader for the vinoiserie department. Are you interested? And I'm like, well, I don't know that much about vinoiserie. Like I would love to learn from I don't even know what that is. What is that? <laughs> it's uh it's the type of pastry that uh is like laminated dough. So it's okay. like croissants mm. and then it's like brioche and that kind of stuff. I had I didn't have any experience making that or producing that. So I was like, well, what better place to learn than from, you know, Thomas Keller. So I like went in for the, you know, trail or whatever and and I got the job. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll just do this now and then still do the baking bean part-time. And then I was there until I was working like 80 to 100 hours a week. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I, that's when I moved on to just my own full-time. So what year was it that you went full-time baking bean? Full-time baking bean, probably t- 2014, I would say. What did that feel like when you were fully out on your own, you're your own boss, master of your own destiny, no clock to punch? I mean, even at the chocolate room when your hours were good, you're working for somebody else. Yes. Now you've got your whole life. It's all, it's all what, what you say goes, but you still have a business that you need to run. And what was your, it seems like you kind of didn't even really necessarily want to start the business. So now that you have it, in 2014, where do you go with it? It was very uh, nerve-wracking, actually. Uh, it's it's very fulfilling and satisfying that you have your own business and your and your your own boss, and everything you have is is what you own. But at the same time, you have a whole set of other problems. It's like, oh, like when you know, I'm I don't have a brick and mortar, so I'm doing everything like out of a commercial kitchen. I'm just doing catering and events and pop up markets, and it's like. Oh, well, you don't, you don't have like a set salary, you know, you're not like getting a paycheck every week or every two weeks. So you don't, you don't really know. Like, I'm like, okay, like I made all this money in December, but like maybe all this money has to last me for the next six months kind of thing, you know? So that's the part that was a little bit like scary for me and just not like, even when you're the boss at a restaurant for somebody else, it's just completely different than when you run your own business because I'm trying to do something this way and I, I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know half the time, like how to, how to get there. Um, and sometimes you think you can prep, like I'd be like, okay, I'm going to make this product and I'm going to order all of this packaging. And then you order all this 10,000 boxes for packaging and then nobody cares about that product. So now you're stuck with like 10,000 boxes, chocolate boxes in your U-Haul storage and park slope, you know, like, <laughs> So it's like now that I just realized, okay, like I really have to like calm myself down and kind of just learn as you go. So if I think I'm going to do something, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to see if it works. And then when it does work at the very last minute, you figure everything else out. So do you do you do pop ups uh, besides catering and, you know, events that someone specifically calls you to bring you in? How do you get the word out about baking bean? How do you connect with customers? Do you do? holiday markets, where do you basically, where do you sell your stuff? I started, uh, initially I started doing Smorgasburg. Mm-hmm. I was at Smorgasburg for I think three or, three or four years. Um, and then I stopped doing Smorgasburg and then I've been doing like more urban space markets. I started doing urban space markets. So every year we're at Columbus Circle Holiday Market. Um, this year I'm also doing the Bryant Park Winter Village. Um, so I'll have no hairs in January (laughs) and, um, but those are the, the primary markets that we do. We, I also did a lot of other smaller markets, you know, several years ago, and then I kind of just got tired of it. And now the only markets I'll do are going to be the holiday markets. Cause that's my prime time. That's when everyone wants to eat chocolate. That's when everyone wants to eat desserts. So when everyone wants to get fat so they can stay warm and drink hot chocolate, you know, so I'm I'm trying to work smarter and not harder. What are, what are the ways that you 
hustle for your business. There's so many people in New York that have either the dream of doing what you've done or it is like you had, it was like their side thing for a little while. So I'm curious, how do you get clients? How do you retain clients? And what are some ways that you found success to connect with people in New York that might have like allegiances to a, we don't have to name them, but sort of like a big box bakery. And you say, if I could only have a shot to get into XYZ, how do you connect with those people? So basically what, what's your customer strategy? This is going to sound really stupid, but I don't don't really have one. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, when I started, when I started the baking bean, um, the, the, a lot of the press that I got did all the work for me and I've been able to keep all that clientele and then just going, you know, doing event uh, markets like Smorgasburg or Columbus Circle. Like I would be there every time I would be there every day. When I first did the Columbus Circle holiday market, I would literally stand in the booth because I wanted to be the face. I wanted to meet all of my customers. I wanted to, you know, network and just talk to people and whatever. I would work the booth every day and then go into the kitchen at four o'clock until, until midnight every night, you know? So I'd be working almost 20 hours a day for like the last two months of the, of every year. And, um, that's just what I did. And now it's like, I just, I don't, I don't have that enough time where I can do that, but I've been able to retain all of my clients. Um, a lot of people find us, we have wholesale accounts too. Um, and then when we get into, we have retail shops that sell our products, then, then people will contact us through that. Um, I've gotten a lot of like recognition and stuff from like, I was on a couple of food challenge shows, you know, on like food network. Yeah. Did you find those to be helpful for the business? They were very helpful. Very, very helpful. Cause you were on beat Bobby flay and yeah, I was on a, I was on sweet genius. I was also on beat Bobby flay and then beat Bobby flay revenge. And I, I can always tell when it airs because all of a sudden like my follower account will go up by like a million. Uh-huh. And then I also get a lot of emails and I get a lot of like DMs saying, Oh, we just saw you. Like we love you. And then people will like order products just from like watching those shows. So, That's awesome. So yeah. it actually, it does a huge amount of marketing for you It does to be on those programs. So do you have a, do you have a commercial kitchen space and does it operate seven days a week to do all the production that you need or does it really just scale up more towards the holidays now? It definitely, I have a commercial kitchen space. It's in, um, it's an industry city in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely scales up more the, during the holiday season. It's usually just me and like one and my sous chef who also handles all of our wholesale accounts, does all the emailing for me and everything. And I just hired, you know, two more cooks so now there's four of us in the kitchen. Um, but yeah, like, and I still make my own deliveries. Like I still make my own deliveries so every day. <laughs> you do too? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, I just want to be able to still kind of like, you know, connect with the people, with my clients and, and talk to them and stuff. So I really try to do as much as I possibly can. You know, um, I make all my deliveries in the morning. I'll go to the kitchen in the afternoon I'll work there until like midnight and then it starts all over again. Yeah. There's something about finding the balance between, uh, being the touch point, like every day you're, you're there and you are interfacing with your clients. But I think you said, you said, I want to work smarter. Yes. You know, and, and part of it about is not just working harder and putting in 20 hours a day. There's a way to put in 12 hours 12 smart hours instead of 20 hard hours and maybe get the same amount accomplished. And, and I have felt like part of that is just as the years go on, you learn more and you make mistakes. Like you said, with the boxes Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. And you learn from them besides just making mistakes and correcting them and having good months. Is there someone that you, that you talk to a mentor, um, could be in culinary, could be outside of the realm, who you look to when you have advice about your business and just just being a, a person who ha- who doesn't have that many people that you have to interact with every single day. Who do you go to to ask questions? I actually like ask uh, my sous chef for a lot of <laughs> opinions. Um, I'll talk to my parents about it. I'll ask my mom. I'll ask my dad. Um, 
mostly whatever my dad says, I do the opposite. <laughs> it's a good strategy if it works. For my you. dad is a very successful businessman, but like not in this kind of field. So mm-hmm. it's like his, the way that his mind works is literally like the opposite of like what I should do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so while you're defying your father, <laughs> I- I'm curious to know what is your. Do you have a, a growth plan? You've been at it quite a while. It seems like you've had really awesome success uh, getting your brand out there. And obviously, the holiday markets, like people would kill to be in the holiday mm-hmm. market. So you're in a great position with some market exposure, some retail, some wholesale, some private clients. But like, what does the future hold for Baking Bean? Where do you, where do you want it to go? And how are you... How are you pushing forward to get there? Well, my my dream, absolute dream, dream job would be to kind of combine both both of my careers and and be a sort of like media personality chef kind of thing. Like, I would love to kind of have some sort of travel slash food show that focuses solely on you know desserts and pastries. Um, that where I can combine like my love for for traveling and eating and and being in front of the camera um that would be my absolute goal not really sure how to get there kind of like that has a lot to do with being at the right place at the right time and somebody seeing you and wanting you and whatever whatever so I'm not really sure how best to get there um as far as like the baking bean growth that's a really hard question for me because I don't think that it's the right time in in today's economy and especially in New York City to be for me to personally be like getting a brick and mortar. The overhead is just too high. Sure. My price point is too low. I'd have to sell like 50,000 s'mores a day, you know, like it just doesn't make sense. And I would have to be like a slave to my work and I don't want to lose passion for my work. I want to have quality of life. So for me right now, how I have it is perfect, but I do want growth. So this year what I have done is I've taken on the extra market, right? Like Bryant Park, it's now, you know, about two and a half months plus Columbus Circle, because usually I just do Columbus Circle. So now, I don't know, I guess I'll do them both, like lose my mind, but see, you know, if that leads to any other opportunities and kind of just trust that I'm going in the right, right direction. Do you have a singular marquee item that that you find that people keep coming back to you for or something at the holiday markets that you kind of put up on the counter, push to the forefront and say like, this is the baking bean item or does it not really work like that? For sure. Our, um, our hot chocolate and our, uh, giant s'mores that we do, people will like come to the holiday markets and they're like, we are so happy that you're back. We literally wait all year just to come here to get your hot chocolate and your giant s'mores. So that's, a hundred percent like our best selling, probably most formidable item, um, that people are looking for. You went to culinary school, you've worked in professional kitchens and now you run your own business. Somebody comes to you and they say, I'm, I've got a business idea. Do you suggest to them to go to culinary school? Do you suggest to them to just go straight into a restaurant and start getting professional experience or something else entirely? I don't think culinary school is necessary. I mean, like in Europe, they don't they don't go to culinary school. You know, they start working in the kitchen at like 14 or 13 as a dishwasher and they move their way up. So it's definitely not necessary. I think that it's more about uh, the kind of the idea that, that you have for your business and how much passion you have for it um, because that's really what's going to, you know, what's going to make it or break it. Have you ever considered, uh, as you're trying to grow, have you ever thought about taking on either new or additional, I don't know if you have any investors in the baking bean to try to expand it? I know you said brick and mortar is not really something that you're interested in, but uh, as you look towards uh, consumer packaged goods and wholesaling and, and all that, which is super confusing, but also takes a lot of money. Is that something that you're exploring or interested in doing? Or do you kind of, you like being a a sort of a New York centric, uh, market focused company right now? Um, I, for there was a couple, a couple years ago where I was obsessed like with getting a brick and mortar. So I was kind of looking 
towards investors, and then I decided that was a horrible idea for me personally. So then I stopped. Um, we do currently have wholesale accounts. We still do everything ourselves. We do all the manufacturing, all of the packaging, everything ourselves. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know where, where else to go, to go from here. You know, I am just trying to drum up as much business and, and be as in, in as many shops and stuff as I can. And it's worked out for me so far, just kind of believing in it and going in the direction without trying to think too hard about like what to do next. So I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> so everyone, everyone can find you at your, at your holiday markets. If there's somewhere else that they can find you throughout the year, let's hear about that right now. And also what's your website so that people can go and place orders and, and look at all the products that you make. Uh, the website is www. Uh, dot bakingbean.com. Uh, we'll be at Bryant Park Winter Village from October 31st through January 5th. We're at Columbus Circle Holiday Market from December 4th to J- December 24th. Um, the rest of the year, you can find us at uh, here in Williamsburg at Campbell Cheese and Grocery. We're at Murray's Cheese. Um, we're at the Museum of the Moving Image. Um, yeah, you can find Murray's probably carries uh the most of our products out of everybody last but not least what's your favorite food city in the world can you decide oh Oh my god you know i i okay before i probably would have said paris just because that always holds you know a really close place in my heart um uh, still for desserts and pastries paris but I have to say, Hong Kong is creeping up on me, and so is uh, Manila in the Philippines. Cool. Clarice, thanks so much for being here and joining us. Uh, it was awesome to hear about uh, your past careers and your growing business. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can hear this episode and more episodes of The Line at heritageradionetwork.org and also everywhere you get your podcast. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for more episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.